0: Thank you all for coming to the uh, British Government at LSC event, the latest in a series of public events by our our British Government at LSC project. And if you want to follow it on Twitter, you can follow it on Hash LSE NHS. And with the topic for the debate tonight is will competition improve the NHS? And we are going to have I'm Professor Simon Hicks, the government department here at LSC, by the way. And we are going to have it in the following order. First, we're going to have Zach. Cooper over here. Zach is uh, an economist, specializes in uh, economics of healthcare, PhD from the LSE and he's going to be leaving these shores for, uh, uh, for the economics department at Yale. Um, running away from a debate here perhaps. Uh, <laughs> we then are going to have uh, Zoe Williams. Zoe is a regular economist in the Guardian and the New Statesman. Then we're going to have Paul Corrigan. Who is a Labour advisor and formerly the health advisor to Tony Blair and is an LSE alum? And we have after that, uh, who's next on Is Frank Dobson. Frank Dobson, MP, a Labour uh, member of the House of Commons and formerly the Secretary of State for Health from ninety seven to ninety nine. also an LSE alum. So we have several on the platform. And finally, we have Alastair, who's going to take supposedly a neutral position. Alistair <laughs> MacLeod, is it possible to be neutral in this debate? Who is editor of the Health Service Journal and, I understand, an active Twitterer. So he may be tweeting tweet, in tweet, the middle yeah. of, the, of the debate. <laughs> How many tweets have you logged so far,
1: already? Only one. Only one? But it, okay. is,
0: well, it was a tweet pic. <laughs> I, I, I want it. OK, follow it on Twitter. So <laughs> off we go. We're going to have maximum 10 minutes per speaker. Keep it short. And then we'll open up for Q&A. And for those of you who do manage to hang around to the end, we have a reception afterwards
2: in the lobby and I'll be reminding you of that at the end. So off we go. Zach, over to you. Very good. Well, thank you. And, and thanks to everyone for, for coming. I think I should begin by saying that I think one of the things that binds each of the people on the stage together is I think we all fundamentally do want to see healthcare improve. You know, and I think one of the things that's happened is as this debate has become more and more toxic that's something that we've forgotten. The, I, I think, what we're debating tonight isn't values, it's, it's really a question of how to, how to achieve those values. Now, I guess I should begin by saying there are a lot of tremendously good hospitals in the NHS. Um, there are also some hospitals that are not quite as tremendously good. You know, I, University College London Hospital, uh, innovative, remarkable Is somebody who is just a patient there, um, was was quite blown away at how good they were. There are also hospitals that I wouldn't go to, that I wouldn't send my parents to, that are twice as likely to kill you from a routine surgery. And so I think the, the question for all of us is what do we do about this variation? You know, how do we, what sort of policies can we introduce that that creates more good hospitals, that makes it more likely that no matter who you are, you'll be able to get to a great facility? Now, I, I think from a, a moral perspective, I think giving patients a choice is imperative. Okay, when we know that there are good and bad hospitals, when we know that there are hospitals that are twice as likely to kill you, I think it's simply wrong not to give you the, the ability to opt out, to go somewhere else. And I think more than than simply being the right thing to do from a a moral perspective, I think it's one of these policies that tends to improve hospital performance. That I think that giving patients a choice, I think measuring how hospitals perform, making that information public and allowing hospitals to compete is a tool not only to, to get good outcomes for the individual, but to improve the performance of these hospitals that are that are lagging behind. Monopolies don't improve performance. Okay, the, if we don't have a choice, there's, there's no consequence for poor performance. You know, there was a story in the BBC News this morning about a gentleman named Cecil Dean. So he's at a care home, couldn't get his GP to come out and see him. For me, the, the tool is giving Mr. Dean and his family the ability to take their business somewhere else. Okay, a consequence for that GP not making that choice, an incentive for other GPs in the system to eventually tailor a service around his needs. Mediocrity, I think, plain and simple, can't be acceptable. There are people here who say folks don't want a choice, they want a good local service. You know, that, that's the, the typical report. I think the unfortunate point is it's just not true. Okay, 71% of patients in the English NHS say that they want a choice of where they go for care. If we ask who those people are, it turns out that less wealthy patients want choice more than wealthy individuals. Folks in manual labor want choice more than academics, than journalists, than politicians, as as the case may be. And the reason that they want choice is because even in systems without formalized choice, choice still exists. It exists for the rich who can pay to go private. It exists for the rich who can move to areas with a better local service. It exists for the rich who have sharper elbows, who can negotiate for better care. I am a pain to be your patient it does not matter whether or not I have a choice, I'm gonna create that choice. And one of the things that choice does is it levels the playing field. That's why when Frank was the health secretary, there was tremendous inequality in a period before choice was introduced. Okay, poorer patients were waiting two weeks longer for care. Okay, the poorer you were, the less time you spent with your doctor, the less likely you were to get surgical care. And so I think there's a very, very strong argument for choice actually being a tool to improve outcomes for the folks who are least advantaged. Okay, then there's this question of evidence. You know, I am a firm believer in the role of evidence in public policy. Okay, we've got to test our theories and see if they work. When I came to England, I was struck by how vicious this debate was. They okay, had one half saying choice was the panacea. They had one half saying it was going to ruin the NHS. Hopefully we could have done a little bit better than that. Okay, we had these policies come in in 2006, and our goal was to test them. Okay, to see whether hospitals exposed to more competition after these reforms did better. Turned out they did. Okay, they lowered their death rates by about 6 to 8%. They shortened their pre-surgical length of stay. And this isn't just a you know, mad team at the LSE. Results were replicated by Carol Proper at Imperial College. A separate team at Stanford University with colleagues at the LSE found that, better hos- or that hospitals facing more competition were better managed, had lower death rates, and higher patient satisfaction okay, which sort of brings us to the, the role of evidence in public policy okay one study is not a rationale for huge sweeping change but as the the evidence base grows as we get more studies consistently finding the same results in the US in the UK I think the case for patient choice gets stronger I think the final point is going to be about the the Lanza reforms um, I'm not a fan of I came out very very early on as somebody who's critical And the way I've said it is the Lansley reforms were a mess. The Lansley reforms promoted competition, but they weren't a mess because they promoted competition. And I think one of the things we've seen is this debate has become more and more toxic is that competition has become the boogeyman. It's become everything and anything that's wrong with Mr. Lansley's proposals. And I think one of the huge dangers that I see is that as we sort of begin to, to throw the Lansley reform out, we throw the competition baby out with it. The only people who are going to lose there are patients and people working in the NHS. We're going to see quality go down, and we're going to see unable to tackle some of the biggest challenges it faces in the years ahead. Thank
0: you very much, Zach. Hang on, time.
2: <laughs> <laughs> it, it worked in the kitchen, you know, in the bathroom mirror this morning. <laughs> it was right at 10 minutes. <laughs>
3: But right, I'm going to try and be as non-toxic as possible. <laughs> um, it's interesting to me that two people uh, who I've interviewed in the past week have said the same thing. They both said, it's immoral to profit from somebody else's ill health. They were quite different people. One of them was Stuart Hall, the multiculturalist, and the other one was June Horto, who's the one who attacked Andrew Lansley and used to be a unionist. The only thing they had in common, in fact, is A, that they were incredibly old, and B, that they were both left wing, (laughs) but it struck me that nobody now talks about morality in terms of competition and profit and health. It's embarrassing, you know, it, it is considered to be the most obvious ideological giveaway if you say this is immoral, whereas actually believing in the market I don't think is any less ideological than believing in morality. But, obviously, it's quite difficult. It's it's much easier to make the practical points. So what are the practical points outside of the moral points? Now, firstly, there is, in situations of extremity, people behave in a certain way. And if they trust their doctor, because they believe his motives to be pure, they will trust in his decisions. One thing you find in America, is that um, they, the people don't trust their doctors because they think that there is profit at stake. So there's a lot, much more litigation and there's much more over-treatment. Um, part of this over-treatment is emergency over-treatment. So people will come in, they won't want CPR, they'll get CPR anyway, because nobody wants a lawsuit from the family. The family doesn't trust the doctor to be saying, don't do CPR in case they're doing it to save money. And you end up with a hell of a lot of people with broken ribs, just no better than they were before. <laughs> Um, the doctors in America have been known to, known to tattoo no code across their chest because they don't want to go in <laughs> and be given CPR when, they, when they're ill, you know, when they probably might not live that much longer anyway. Um, so there's massive overtreatment at the point of um, extremity, but there's also massive overtreatment of the rich throughout Ameri- American healthcare. This is the Mirror Mirror study, which I think started in 2006, has always shown that if you would compare America to the six other co- countries with comparable spending, their outcomes are worse. But their outcomes aren't just a little bit worse, they're significantly worse. America per capita spending is $7,000 a year, and it's the w- it has worse outcomes than anybody. The best outcomes are Australian, where their comparable figure is 3,500, So it's costing a lot of money, and that's not just in at the very end of life, when people have unnecessary CPR, rich people are over-treated, they're over-investigated, they go along and they say, I want to know what's wrong, and there's nothing to stop somebody doing endless investigation. It doesn't help them. Um, and, and, And this is something that is very rarely said, that actually too much choice and too much at your disposal is not a good thing in healthcare. You might not be the best person to decide on how much investigation you need. And if you can throw money at it limitlessly, that might not be particularly good for you. Cheatness, um, this is one of the reasons why they've got the worst outcomes. Another of the reasons is that poor people are undertreated, obviously. I mean. It seems to be absurd to say you'll have this competition system between hospitals, you'll have a system in which you can choose your, well I mean obviously this is partly to do with Nancy's reforms, but if if hospitals can choose the patients they take, which they'll have to be able to if they're going to compete between one another, then some hospitals will soar and some hospitals will end up with a lot of much more (laughs) sick people. I've seen this at close hand when two maternity units tried to merge. And the idea was for all the difficult patients to go to one and all the easy patients to go to another. Now, that, in the end, would have resulted in one hospital being a, flag- a beacon hospital for Europe. It would have had every single consultant in the country, and the other hospital might as well have closed down. Um, in a way, you need to accept that some hospitals are going to... hospitals their standards are going to undulate. Sometimes they're going to have very difficult cases, sometimes they're going to have, more, have easier cases. If you try and funnel people in one way or the other, it actually doesn't work terribly well for their kind of health needs. And the idea that we can all go into an endless choice scenario, anywhere, especially outside London, and choose freely between five equally um, convenient hospitals is, a li- is just a little bit unrealistic, I think, certainly with the NHS. To return to the Mirror Mirror study and this undertreated... I realise that you can't see straight from increased competition in the NHS to the wholesale adoption of US-style insurance-based healthcare. But even quite small measures within the NHS would result in quite large-scale changes of that sort. Um, You know, there's a huge difference at the moment between a hospital like Chelsea and Westminster and a hospital like King George's. But the difference is mainly atmospheric. It's, it's, you know, everybody notices it. Everybody notices that you, when you walk in. The foyer art is much better in Chelsea and Westminster, and nobody really cares. So it seems that, it, you know, people have managed to retain certain kind of medical values in a way that they, in a way that in other sectors, certainly in education, one indicator will suddenly send everybody flying to one school. The trust that competition doesn't drive all, isn't, doesn't drive everything in the NHS keeps people... In a kind of trust situation with their local hosp- hospital, even if it doesn't look as good as the hospital down the road, a much more politically neutral and possibly more influential feature in the w- way different developed countries have um, organised their healthcare is that um, there are no incentives in place to develop national policies. Once once people are competing against each other, they don't share information. Now I've seen this at close out, I've seen this in Newham this week. They've got two. Um, They've got a, an A what we used to call an A and E department, but now it's called critical care and emergencies. They're run by two different people. They've got the same stu- they've got the same patients coming in, but they've got different budgets, and they're fighting between themselves about which patients to send to which unit. Now that is not cooperative. It looks ridiculous. A stranger walking in laughs in their face because they you know because the actual patients don't care whether they go to critical care. Or they go to accidents. They just want to get better. Um, the same goes when you when you kind of look at that in, on a macro level. If you don't share information, if you're not incentivized to share information, then preventative policies don't pan out. And this is something that America has really found. Scuppered their amazing technology is that if you don't share th- that technology, it doesn't mean anything. You know. So one of the first things Obama did in 2009 was sign the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act, including 19 billion to expand health information technology, just so you could get to a kind of base level of sharing information that any European country would take as standard. In 2010, they had the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act, which was, again, just to have preventative advances. If one state was doing a certain thing for diabetes, then other states would would at least know they were doing it, even if they weren't statutory required to take it up if you don't share information you just things are very very sluggish and it's in centralised care that the UK excels which is why we come second overall in these seven nations even while our spending is not huge and even while amusingly in the category of long healthy and productive lives we come second to last <laughs> that's it <laughs> <laughs> that's very
0: <right, I'm> much <laughs> so over to
4: Okay. Um, um I, I've got uh, three slightly different things to say, and um, I'm pleased looking around the room that it's not just Frank and I that are the same age as the NHS. Um, uh, that, uh, um, <laughs> um, because the crucial moment of the start of the NHS is a leaflet was sent to every house in the country, and the first words on those leaflets said, first choose your GP. And actually, we've been waiting 65 years for the ability to do that Um, because that that choice and competition at the crucial moment of having a GP has not been allowed into the NHS because the doctors have constructed a monopoly. And we've allowed, we've spent £110 billion going along with that monopoly rather than actually going for competition in primary care. And that lack of competition as actually having uh, impact upon primary care across the country Um, uh, So we have got a primary care system with some very, very good ones, and I won't say lots of not very good ones, I say lots of very, very bad ones. Um, And that there is no mechanism within that system where the good take over the bad because there is no competition. So the main way in which people get access to our healthcare system, to our system which is uh, uh, free access for all at the point of need, is really very bad because there is no competition at primary care level. Uh, and in those areas where it is, uh, as the point that Zach was saying, then the good get rid of the bad. In those areas it isn't, the bad continue and nothing much happens to them. So uh, not having competition at primary care has actually been a big problem for the National Health Service and it's a problem which no government has actually had the nerve to do because you have to take on the BMA to do that. Um, so they're a failure to do this is affecting health across the country and it's, inc- it's, it's increasing inequalities because we don't have that competition. Um, the second point that I think has been made uh, in various ways so far is this is a major institution in our society. It employs 1.4 million people. It spends nearly 10% of the GDP. There is no way you can in some way construct a wall around an organisation like that and keep something that goes on in the rest of the society away from it. You really cannot say an institution uh, which is such a major part of our society can be kept away from things that every other institution in our society has. So competition, if you have 1.4 million people working for an institution, you have a thing called a labour market. You have a very big labour market. In fact, you have a whole series of labour markets, and those labour markets are run through competition. Where they're not run through competition, they behave very badly. One, comp, one place to, uh, in point. We had uh, things called strategic health authorities. Strategic health authorities, when 10 people were, elected, were appointed to be in charge of the strategic health authority, those 10 people between them had 173 years' experience in the NHS and one year of anything else. That's what happens when you don't have competition. That's what happens when actually an institution tries to pretend it can defend itself from the rest of society. All sorts of experiences which are necessary don't come into that. I was part of a government that introduced choice in secondary care. Uh, People said this was a really odd thing to do, but actually in every other part of society, these people had choice. And we were meant to say, no, as a delicate soul, you're not up to it. You can choose all sorts of other things in your life, but actually we don't think you're up to choosing in health. That is patronising rubbish, and it's not something we can, as a modern society, allow to continue in what is a major institution. Because before choice came in, the, 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 the NHS is sort of likes to see itself as a command and control institution. Not true. It's a command institution with no control whatsoever. <laughs> the institution has been out of control from the centre because people at the centre believe you can run 1.4 million people by shouting at them. What you get in the NHS is a lot of shouting and not much control, um, because it believes that you can run an institution from the top with 1.4 million people. You cannot do that. So two things I think. You, first of all, GPs as, as, uh, 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 are vital to have competi- more competition. Secondly, the institutions that run through the rest of our society, like choice and competition, run through the NHS and make it a better place. And The, the last thing I'd like to say is that a lot of the debate in the last nine months has been a, a, as if the LS as if the as if the, LSE, as if the <laughs> NHS is a delicate flower, right? And that actually it's such a fragile thing that a bit of competition is going to in some way shift this off its axis. Not true. I believe it's an incredibly powerful institution which can withstand all sorts of things. And actually has done so already and will do so in the future. This is not a delicate institution which can be shoved off. In 2006, 1% of all all operations in the NHS were done by independent sector treatment centres. If you read the papers at the time, it was as if the institution was going to fall to its knees. Not true. It actually managed to construct a better service because of that small part of competition. So just to conclude, With the last point about competition, I was brought up uh, in a political family and being the same age as the NHS, the NHS was very important to me and my family, and I was brought up to believe it could be and should be the best health service in the world. That's competition and it's one the NHS will win.
5: Thank you very much. Frank? Well, can I just start off with two points. First of all, uh, anybody can choose their GP and anybody anybody can unchoose their gp and move on to another and when the national health service was founded and before the uh, the competitor lot got going and persuaded <laughs> the previous tory government to introduce an internal market anybody in this country could be referred to any hospital in the country it's since the markets that have been introduced that the, uh, the scope for choice was reduced and had to be restored. So having said that, I'll say I'm, I'm always open to new ideas, so I look very carefully at the products of Zach and his merry folks. And uh, <laughs> they claim that patient choice has forced hospitals to compete and that this in turn has led to more increased efficiency, better quality treatment and saved lives across the whole spectrum of treatments in those hospitals designated by them as being most exposed to competition since year 0, 2006. Now this is a very large claim. Closer examination of the documents reveals this wide claim was launched from a surprisingly narrow base to wit Bigger reductions in the pre-surgical length of stay for elective surgery patients in competition hospitals. Those reductions amount to no more than an hour or uh, two hours. So it's all based on that. Yet, generalising from that particular, the (coughs) authors go on to assert without a shred of evidence that this reduction, and I quote, captured overall improvements in hospital efficiency and consequently demonstrated that competitive hospitals were 7.9% more efficient across the board. I must confess I was also startled by the statement on page 19 of the February 2012 paper, and I quote again, "'Competition had a beneficial impact outside London.' and higher competition was associated with lower length of stay when when we excluded patients treated in London from our analysis. Now I'd have thought, I'm a simple soul, that the scope for competition between hospitals in London is at its highest uh, because there are many alternative hospitals to choose from compared with any other part of the country. Another major underlying problem in this work is it was so narrowly defined. It treats 2006, when the current hospital regime was introduced as year zero, Paul Potts' phrase, and concentrates on changes since then. And as the the author's whole thesis is based on length of stay as the measure of efficiency, the measure of efficiency, they might have noted that in the five years before year zero 2006, the average length of stay in NHS hospitals was reduced by 1.5 days, while in the five years since 2006, the average length of stay has been reduced by only 1.1 days. So if we use the authors' own assumptions and their phrases, the famous captured overall improvements in hospital efficiency would appear to have slowed down since competition was introduced in 2006. The authors also looked at survival rates from heart attacks. Now it has to be said, patient choice and competition have very little to do with heart attacks. (laughs) Nobody has an elective heart attack. (laughs) Nobody browses through a glossy brochure before deciding where to get treated. They get moved as quick as possible to the nearest hospital that provides the appropriate service. Speed is of the essence and proximity helps. The authors nevertheless claim the hospitals they deemed to be competitive by length of stay were doing a better job. In the short time available to me, I should mention another inconvenient truth for the promoters of competition, and that's the fact that the most dramatic improvements in survival rates in the NHS in recent years result from the reverse of competition. They result from the meningitis C vaccination programme, the world's first required of the whole NHS. They result from children's intensive care, which used to be notionally provided in a whole variety of competing hospitals. And when it was concentrated by national direction in a limited number of regional and sub-regional centres, survival rates soared. More recently, stroke provision has been concentrated in a similar way. And again, survival rates have soared. Children's heart surgery is about to be concentrated in fewer units. There's a bit of a barney about which they should be but everybody accepts the principle and it's a safe bet that standards will improve. None of those things have got a shred to do with competition and everything to do with cooperation. And cooperation and pooling of risk and cost are the fundamental aspects of the National Health Service not to be found in the United States the most competitive system and one which costs twice as much per head as our healthcare system and leaves Americans with a lower life expectation for men and the same life expectation for women I think it's the gunplay that affects the men <laughs> Frank, thank you very much so,
0: uh, so, I'm confused. We've got is it good policy or bad morality or, or good evidence or bad science? I'm, I'm, can you put us straight here as the neutral person on the panel? Um, no, I can't.
1: <laughs> um, I just thought I'd make some general observations and then talk a little, react a little to what people have, have said. I mean, uh, for those who don't know, Health Service Journal, um, we've been around a long time. Why as, as the NHS, 120 years. Uh, we've been read through that time by the changing mix of people who run the health services in this country. We began as the Poor Law Officers' Journal, uh, and um, and we changed title seven times before we became HSJ in the mid 80s. So. In the people who read HSJ are the people running NHS um, uh, hospital trusts or um, uh, leading the commissioning um, services and people in, in in service as well. And so a lot of what I'm trying to a lot of what I'm trying to say is what those people who are actually delivering health services, organising, uh, financing, planning health services are actually saying to me. So, I think. You know, in terms of when we talk about competition, the first thing I want to know is: what are we com- competition? Are we talking about competition on quality? Are we talking about competition on price? Are we talking about competition on both? It's a very important thing, and every time we talk about competition, we should define ourselves. We should define what we're talking about in the first place. We should about competition for what? The health service. You know, we talked about hospital services for the moment, but of course. You know, there's an enormous range of services delivered by the um, uh, um, uh, NHS, and some, and competition affects them. In, 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 trying to be entirely new, competition affects them in different ways. So we have to be very precise. Competition to what end? Competition to drive down price? Competition to improve service? Um, competition to introduce new entrants? We have to be, well, What is the end result of, 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 of competition? There, are, there are a lot. All of those outcomes. Are good are good in themselves. They have negative connotations as well. But we have to define that. Competition between what? Now, having competition, so for example, between different parts of an integrated um, um, uh, uh, care pathway, um, would be a you know obviously suggest to be a bad would would at face value to be a bad thing competition between two like-minded providers, uh, two sort of similar providers, one of which who provide exactly the same quality at a lower cost. Well, not giving NHS patients access to that service, or somebody who could provide quality, better quality at the same cost, not giving access to that is, you know, somebody raised morality early on, that seems to be like a poor moral choice to, um, uh, to make. And also, you know, I think that it's a... <sighs> There's an elephant in this room. Um, when we talk about competition, we talk. I, I think a lot of the time we're talking about the role of the private sector in, in the NHS. Now, again, trying to remain um, resolutely neutral on, on on this, you know, the N, the private sector has played a significant role in the NHS ever since its birth. There is an argument, not one that I truly hold to, but it, plenty of people put forward that. GPs are in the private sector. They are self-employed contractors. They are not NHS staff. And uh, wh- why do they have NHS pensions? They've got a good union. <laughs> um, uh, so you know, and and <laughs> that's the kind of reaction you want. Um, uh, and you know, if you look at areas like
0: water providers,
1: <laughs> if you look at areas like um, uh, 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 mental health, medium secure mental health provision, about a third of that's been run by the um, uh, private sector for a good long time now. And I don't know anybody in the mental health world who says, you know, they've got plenty of mental health people complain about lots of things, but you know, they don't tend to complain. Uh, they don't tend to complain about that. So we've got to be very careful in, our, in, our, in, our, in how we think about NHS and competition because it isn't straightforward. People in the NHS are nervous of competition. Of course they are. If you exist in any kind of system where there has been little competition and somebody tries to introduce it, you will be nervous of it, and in many cases for good reason. Uh, one of the thing, but there's not a huge amount of enthusiasm for it in the private sector, after all. I mean, you need to look... I, I always say to those people who are particularly worried about private sector, you know, taking over the NHS: Have they looked at the private sector in the uh, private health sector in this country? It's tiny. It's re- it, so its its capacity is in- intensely constrained. Its skill set is very limited because of its size. It has real trouble raising money to invest it, uh, to invest in new um, uh, services because. Its investors will say you're going into a market which has a lot of uncertain risks. Look at these state of the reforms; we don't know which way they're going. So, it's something that we need to think about: is where would that competition actually um, come from, and is it have we got enough, have we got a developed enough market to actually make competition? If we decided it was a good thing, have we actually got enough competitors in it to make it properly work? Um, it's very disruptive at a time of pressure. There's an awful lot going on in uh, in the health service at the moment. We're trying to save, and the health service is trying to save £20 billion because of the reduction in growth in in funding, historic growth in in funding. So, you know, the last thing they need is the disruption of competition, but then possibly they're not going to save that £20 billion doing the same thing in the same way. So, maybe, and I'm not making a judgment here, maybe competition is one way to do it in certain areas. Just responding very quickly to um, the various points that people um, made, Um, Zach started off talking about um, uh, hospitals, and I just don't want to stress that point. In my mind, there are certain hospital services that are fruitful to talk about in competition, and there are certain hospital services that are absolutely not fruitful to talk about in in competition. But as Paul said it's not just hospitals and we should be very clear when we're talking about it he said monopolies don't improve things well that's plainly not true monopolies do improve things the question is whether they improve the question is whether they improve them fast enough and the question is whether they improve them faster than introducing an element of competition competition always has some kind of negative connotation when you introduce it and anybody who's introducing competition has got to make that judgement call about the bad stuff with, uh, with the good. It talks about choice. Um, now choice, um, I briefly was the Development Director of NHS Choices, the, um, uh, the website, patient facing website for the NHS. Choice to work properly requires information and it requires advocacy. A lot of the systems, Paul will know this, a lot of the systems that we built to drive choice, the systems to inform that choice and to provide advocates for people who had difficulty accessing that information and claiming that uh, and using it, they, those systems haven't been built yet. And it would worry me personally to see any kind of rollout of competition without much better information and much, much better advocacy. Um, Zoe talked about the morality of doctors uh, and the motiv- sorry the motivations of doctors under competition. Absolutely, they do change. I was reading an interesting piece um, about how competition has changed the, um, uh, um, the motivations of Dutch doctors under, uh, under, under competition, and it's something we haven't thought about enough, and we th- think about it more. But we shouldn't think that there aren't things that drive decisions of doctors right now that we might not be too comfortable with if we understood them if we understood them more, more better. You know, everybody takes decisions for particularly motive and it's not like you introduce competition. Um, so we talked a lot about the US. One of the bête bu- noirs of this competition, one of the reasons that Zach gets so much flack is he's got an American accent. You know, <laughs> we 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 we're obsessed with the US healthcare in this country as the US is obsessed with the NHS. And we, it's a really you know there are loads of other health systems in this world, good and bad, who use competition, good and bad. Different. Areas. We should spend much more time looking at those other systems. The American yes. system is screwed. Nobody should be copying no. that. The Americans know that. They're trying to avoid it. But there are plenty of other systems elsewhere that use competition. Again, not. But you know we need to spend improve our language skills and look a lot better. Um, yeah, Right. Two minutes. Um, I thought I'll be I'll be done in two minutes, and I've still got some time. Right, okay. Um, I'm going to speed through, and they get the points. Um, Paul talked about SHAs and um, uh, the fact that there are loads of people from the NHS. Um, those people had loads and loads of NHS experience. One of the things again, I talk about how competition is is you know the the, the possibility or the speed of change in competition, the competition of competition in the NHS, is that the people who are going to run this new system are virtually the same people who have been running the old system, Uh, you know, and at HSJ we've done quite a lot of work on that. Those old people, they weren't particularly fans of competition, they aren't particularly fans of competition, so we've got to think about how, you know, this idea, just because, I think in a lot of this debate, there's a suggestion that because a government writes it down in a bill, or a health secretary says it should be so, it will happen. It won't. If people don't want it to happen on the ground, they won't happen on it on the ground. And speeding to the end. Um, So Frank talked about the fact that choice was available before the um, reforms. Um, That's very true, Um, uh, but how often was it exercised? And since it was exercised with almost no information base and very little advocacy, it probably wasn't very meaningful choice. Before my time, um, uh, and, uh, and you know, do, does choice make hospitals improve? Well, um, it can. When the independent sector treatment centre uh, program was launched, I spoke to lots of trust chief executives who said the fact we've got an ISTC on the border or uh, on our on our on our borders, or the fact that they've even threatened to set one up, meant my docs. Worked better, and I got better productivity. So it can work in that. You know, that's a particularly narrow, uh, narrow sphere. The biggest problem of all we have, and the point I'll finish on, is that we've got an terribly narrow evidence base, uh, and therefore it's very, diff- very difficult. And there is a lot of overclaiming of um, the benefits of competition, which is hard to prove because of the narrow evidence base we have. Equally, I would say there's lots of overclaiming on the uh, of the disastrous effects competition properly introduced into the service might have.
0: Thank you very much. Okay, so we have about 40 minutes left for questions. Um, hands up for questions. We'll take two or three at a time. Please, time? not yet. Um, and um, state your name. Sorry, and mics, roving mics coming round. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yes,
0: okay? No, it's not your oh, State <laughs> your, your name uh, and keep your questions short, please. No lectures from the audience. Okay. Um, we'll start up here. gentlemen gentleman with the glasses. Hi, good evening. Can you hear me?
2: Yeah. Um, my name is William Wong. Thanks very much for that. Um, I really want to um, challenge this question... Um, we are sitting here at LSE, which is one of the most outstanding universities in Britain, maybe in the world. Allegedly. Um, imagine if LSE, from the autumn, saying access is purely by access is purely by being inclusive. So, depending on where you live or the desire for higher education, mm-hmm. right? Nothing to do with merit. We've understood the higher education system is all about excellence, research, and so on, which attracts the best and more leads to more. Why is it so difficult for some people to understand the same principles for the health service? Thank you. One
0: down here. Great, thanks. Got to keep you busy. <laughs> uh, in the middle, in the middle.
3: Fiona McKenzie, uh, lead governor at UCH, thank you, Zach, for uh, extolling the virtues of our institution. Um, Given the key needs for choice and um, information and advocacy uh, to drive quality or price competition in the NHS, and in the full knowledge that commissioners are already constraining patient choice around the country, um, what does the panel think how competition can work without true patient choice and without full information and advocacy? For patients, and how likely is this, given commissioners' budgets? Do
2: you just want to take those two, or do you want to take another one? Take one more. For take one more. We well, I want. I want
0: to add the big guy over here next. <laughs> <more.
2: laughs>
0: Gentlemen. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yep.
6: Yeah. That's one. Yep. The First thing I'm truly puzzled by is how possible. People can make informed choices of their GPs or their hospitals. It'll be subjective, it'll be based on word of mouth, rumour, newspaper, media, uh, slamming one hospital, you know, lady left on trolley for um, (laughs) 18 hours, and in short. Now, when I moved home from Richmond to Shepherd's Bush in 1977, I needed a new GP. I asked my next. (laughs) I'm <laughs> not Thank you very much.
0: Do you want to take it, Frank across? Are we going to see uh, Google doctors or something? What is it we're going to see?
5: Well, I don't know. I think I, I, <laughs> I don't think there are very many parallels between people's need for uh, local hospital treatment and uh, the the wonders of the London School of Economics. Quite frankly, I think you're talking in two different spheres altogether. Um, as far as uh, you know, the wonders of uh, University College Hospital. All I can say is, as I was the person who authorised it being built, I have a sneaking (laughs) suspicion that the new building, the new equipment and the additional doctors and nurses may have contributed ever such a little bit to the improved performance of what was already uh, an absolutely first rate hospital. And I think that there has been a, a, a general effort really to downplay the impact of having New hospitals, more equipment, and more doctors and nurses, and better qualified ones. Uh, and uh, that seems to be one of the general positions on the on the question of informed choices. So far as I know, the only real assessment uh, is of uh, uh, open heart surgery, where the man who used to be the head of uh, Cardiac surgery at University College Hospital went on to the Department of Health and bludgeoned his fellow cardiac surgeons into accepting that they would produce some some sound statistics. Uh, But there aren't any sound statistics for most other treatments, and they are very difficult to arrive at. Uh, Besides representing UCH, I represent uh, Great Ormond Street. If you look at the death rate at Great Ormond Street, it's rather higher than quite a lot of children's units at other hospitals, or for that matter, some other children's hospitals. That's because the children who get there are tertiary, quaternary, quinternary refere- referees whose, uh, whose chances of survival are small when they arrive at the hospital. So you've got to be very, very careful about producing these. But I must say, the idea that we're going to employ legions of people roaming around as advocates So we're we're introducing another chunk of people who are not actually treating patients, going round, helping people choose. And whatever Zach says, virtually every survey that's ever been done says most people say, yeah, I'd like a choice, but if I live in Leicester, I'll go to one of the three hospitals in Leicester, I don't want to have to go to the Queen's Medical Centre in Nottingham. And there will be a small group of people who want to go to Nottingham but I don't think we should run the system just for the benefit of the people who want to go to Nottingham.
2: Thanks very much, Zach. Great. Well, I'm going to respond to some of the, the uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, insightful points made by Frank um, and then I'll take some of the, the questions from the floor. Um, I guess start by talking a little bit about the US. Um, So the elephant in the room, I I am an American. Um, (laughs) I I am not uh, espousing that you should copy what we're doing. Um, But I do think comparing the US to the the UK isn't apples to oranges, it's sort of apples to Volkswagens. You know, like We're not even in the the same territory yet. Two key points. We've got to be really honest about what the Affordable Care Act that President Obama introduced. Um, It actually was to increase competition. You know, one of the big issues in the U.S., if we look at the the insurance market, it's become hugely anti-competitive. If we look at Louisiana, 80% of the folks are insured by the same company. If we look at the hospital market, it's become 60% more consolidated over the last 15 years. And a lot of the advocates would argue that's part of the problem. And the Affordable Care Act is actually targeted at making things more, not less competitive. Um, I'm going to now talk a little bit about what Frank said. Um, There's a great legal phrase when the law is on your side, argue the law. When the facts are on your side, argue the facts. And when you know the law or the facts, bang banging the desk. Um, you know, his antithesis to evidence is putting him in sort of a unique club with climate change skeptics and the folks who bash evolution. Um, this might be a company you'd like to keep. I- I'm not a huge fan of it. Um, I never quoted <laughs> a single phrase or a single figure that isn't in your own documents. Yeah. And I think that's right. The, the key point there is he didn't read the other paragraphs that were between the ones that he quoted. <laughs> you know, the reason we used mortality is, is actually a really important point for all of us. We didn't want to use a measure where you could choose, okay, where the result would be from patients choosing the best hospitals. Because if we'd look at that, we would just find out that people did a good job choosing good hospitals. We wanted a condition of heart attacks where you didn't have any choice. And where the outcomes at that facility were simply a function of what the hospital was doing. And what we found clearly was that mortality was going down across the country in more and less competitive areas. There was no difference before 2006, but when these policies kicked in, we see a branch. Hospitals in more competitive areas did better. Same thing about the length of stay paper. Again, you can can joke about the pre-surgical length of stay turns out there's a bit more of that in the paper. turns out it's about 7,000 words, a couple more than a few loose paragraphs. And one of the things we do is we show a lot of these outcomes are correlated. Okay, if you do better on heart attack mortality, you get higher patient satisfaction, you get lower length of stay, lower waiting times, lower costs. Okay. Now, my research is not the end-all, be-all. I will be the first to, to say that. There's going to be more work that comes out that probably modulates our findings, and I'll be the first to look at that and say what's going on. The crucial part is that we use evidence. Okay, one of the things Frank hasn't done is cite any evidence to show things are getting worse or say what he would do to make them better. Okay, that's the sort of old political hand. You criticize the folks with solutions and you don't say what you're going to do. Unfortunately, we, we actually have some evidence on the success of your policies while you were in government. He actually is the only secretary who was in office under labor where waiting times went up and quality went down. <laughs>
7: Oh, okay. One That's more minute, actually.
5: Okay. So now i the go. questions. Um. <laughs> <laughs> well, in terms of waiting times and waiting lists, they both—the the list started coming down in a big way, and then the times caught up. And that would be the normal thing that anybody would expect.
2: I hate to let the facts get in the way of a good Zoe, story, but they Sorry. Yeah, I'm actually going
3: to ch- cut in in a minute. Cut in now. <laughs> cut in now.
0: You can ask the questions.
3: Okay. Yeah. No. Just to defend. I mean, just to defend Frank for a second. The reason I keep being accused of obsessing about the U.S. I'm not obsessing about the U.S. I just use that as a as the obvious example because it was the worst and most expensive. Actually, this is a survey of seven countries that happens to have been take, undertaken. By an American agency, and the UK comes across really, really well, and that's what we keep forgetting is how amazingly good the NHS is, and not in no small part thanks to the last government. You know, I mean, I don't like everything they did by any means, <laughs> but you know, there was a lot of good stuff. Just to deal with these questions, William, Wong, I don't think. I mean, I'm with Frank really. I don't really see. They're two different things, aren't they? You, you go A university is a center of learning excellence, so you select the people who are the cleverest, whereas a hospital is to treat its citizens, so you allow in the people who are ill. And I just think that selecting the people who are ill in the most interesting way might make <laughs> for a better training hospital, but it doesn't actually make for better health care. I think I can do a switch and answer to the second and the third questions at the same time. In terms of how commissioning is going to work, I don't think, just from the, my experience of choosing schools, I don't think you will actually have a choice. I think your GP will have, what will happen is that so, some GP practices will be really good at it, some will be really bad at it, some you'll agree with their philosophy, others you won't, so competition will become intense for certain GP practices which you then won't be able to get into, exactly like primary schools. And in the sense that you want that GP but you can't get in will make everybody incredibly febrile and want it more then people will start moving nearer it and then the perception that one is a million times better than another will intensify so that you suddenly suddenly take two schools and they're actually not that different but people are selling their houses just to get out of one and into another Um, then what happens is (coughs) they end up not being able to go to the school they want to go to and so they go to the school that they really don't want to go to. And then they're amazed when their children are taught to read. And exactly the same thing will <laughs> happen. They're like, I really don't want this GP. Oh, my God, you diagnosed my heartburn. What a genius. But by then, it will be too late because perceptions will be kind of locked in. And this comes back to Dan Pilsen's point that actually informed choice is it's really thin on the ground, even... A lot of experts don't know what, what the right choice is. So the idea that a lot of people who just want regular garden-variety healthcare are going to make brilliant choices based on all the available evidence, I think, is, is moonshine. And it just wastes a lot of individuals' time as well as society's time. Yeah,
4: yeah, yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Every oh. single doctor I know trawls through a whole range of evidence to choose where they send their family or for every operation they have. Uh, all the time. That's what goes on amongst the medical profession. Uh, And the notion that it doesn't go on is a fantasy. And so they do it, and they either do it by putting their fingers in the wind, and by actually not knowing anything, or they do it because of information. Um, And why are they allowed to do that, but other people are not allowed to do it, because they're too thick, apparently, to understand things? That's just not acceptable. And the great thing about this is that it's not going to be done by the NHS the NHS this state organisation not we have to stop it information is going to start flowing we are not in china it's going to start flowing through the internet it's going to start flowing through a whole range of different is. forms and so and it already is right and so we're going to have a much more informed public And they're going to make a lot more choices. And what's the NHS? It won't be able to do anything about it because actually those choices will be part of what the modern society is and how people live their lives. It'll happen in the rest of society and it'll happen in the NHS and the NHS will be better for it. And, sorry, on patient advocates. This, again, is already happening, and it will happen not through state employees. It will happen through patient groups. UK Diabetes, Macmillan are an advocacy group. Macmillan's advocate where to go and where the best hospitals are, and they help people with that. And we'll find patient groups picking this up and running with it again and again.
1: Just two very quick points. Um, So this point about um, GP practices. I mean, one of the the weaknesses of these reforms, I think, is that there is no meaningful um, uh, policy in it to increase or encourage the choice of GP practice. The practice boundaries stuff is smoke and – it, sorry, uh, th- there is no meaningful um, uh, policy within the reforms to increase um, choice of GP practice. The s- practice boundaries reforms are pretty much pretty weak smoke and smoke and mirrors Toned and down to keep the GPS on side for for um, uh, for, for, for commissioning now if you gr- if you believe the competition can have positive effect if you believe it certainly won't be the case in in primary care the choice between G- gp practices nothing meaningful being proposed uh, there. Finally, it seems to me a gospel of despair to say that we can 't use the enormous amount of detailed information on NHS performance to somehow inform um both professionals and patients about making the right kind of choices in their healthcare. I can't think of any other walk in life where we'd accept that bargain.
0: Okay, open up some more. I can't resist a comment on the, having gone through the primary schools and secondary schools things with my kids, I've learned two things from competition in the, the schools market. One, you don't get the choices you want. We didn't get any of our six from our same <laughs> do But two, it, it does improve schools.
7: <laughs> One
8: at the back there. Uh, uh, John Lippitz um, I'd just like to say it's interesting that the meeting today wasn't about why do we need to move away from the integrated cooperative service currently being provided because Britain is highest on equity in the world, high on general patient satisfaction and it's high on value for money but what worries me is the comments from uh, Zach and from Paul where's your evidence there is no comment on the Lansley bill at all no reference to shareholder returns no reference to transaction costs, no reference to the likelihood of cherry picking, and it leaves me with the question what about the patients with complex and chronic conditions, when you've got competition between departments, different contracts across across the NHS, chosen by the commissioning groups, and uh, They don't have a choice, which means that the doctor-patient relationship is undermined. So that's my question to the panel. Thank you.
9: Thank you, (coughs) Okay, down here. Julian LeGraw from the NSE. I want to talk about the other hate figure... um, in the room, not just the American healthcare system, but the Blair government, um, in which a number of us were involved in one, one way or another. Um, the, um, uh, under, when Frank was uh, health secretary, or when we came in, uh, when the Blair government came in, the attempt was to try to uh, reverse <coughs> the previous government's internal market, to some extent, or reverse the competition uh, element in it, and to move to an era of trust and collaboration I think it was generally felt that after that had been tried, after two, three or four years, um, and various waiting times had gone up and various other things had happened, that this, this didn't work and that really public hospitals needed a challenge of some kind. A cha- you couldn't just trust them on their own mm-hmm. to operate, but you needed a challenge to uh, get them to lever up quality. So we switched, or the government switched to targets of performance management, a heavy challenge. I think there was generally then a feeling that actually that that wasn't the right way to go either. I mean, they worked. Targets, there's no doubt. The Targets did work in a, in a crude sense, but I think there was a general feeling that at the end of the day, this probably was not a good way to run uh, a railway, or indeed a national health Service. And, in a university. Um, or indeed possibly or a university or anything maybe, um, and that we have to introduce some other kind of challenge. And so the other kind of challenge was introduced was the challenge of. Choice and competition um, and I think the real question that I think that, um, that Frank and Zoe um, have to have to answer, which is in a way the question that Zach put I mean what would you do or do, do you really believe that public hospitals can actually lever up quality without a challenge? Um, they can just trust them to do it, or do you think that they need a challenge? And if so, what form of challenge would it take? Um, if it's not choice and competition, what is it?
0: Well, let's let's take those two because they flip two sides of the same coin here. One saying it ain't broke, don't fix it. It is broke. What would you do to fix it? So, we'll go from this end, Alistair, across very quickly, and then we can open it up again.
1: Okay. well, the NHS is um, in many ways uh, the envy of the world. If you go to any healthcare conference uh, um, outside the UK, people want to know what's going on in the NHS. They understand that the NHS has a huge number of uh, advantages and they're very uh, jealous of some of the successes that the NHS has achieved, uh, particularly jealous of its um, uh, um, ability to operate on a system-wide basis. But um, the NHS is what's now um, uh, over to 60 years old. A huge amount of the care that's supplied for it is not integrated. So 60 plus years ha- of running the NHS on current lines has not produced integrated care. Um, and also, there's a lot of non-cooperation going on in the N- uh, in the NHS. An enormous <laughs> amount of non-cooperation going on the, uh, in in the uh, in the NHS. Um, We haven't talked about the Lansley reforms, Uh, uh, the gentleman suggested that we talked about the Lansley reforms. I I don't think that anyone along this table would be a champion for for, for these reforms. Um, They had some good defining principles but they've been very badly um, introduced as um, uh, we've made clear in the joint editorial that we wrote with Nursing Times and the British Medical Journal um, uh, uh, earlier on. So, you know, I think there's a real danger that this debate around competition has been wrapped in with some very badly put together reforms and that
4: sort of coloured the whole debate. Just to linger on that point about integration uh, uh, certainly everybody's major critique of the National Health Service at the moment is that it's not integrated. Um, uh, It may be 60 years old but we mainly suffer from a lot of Latin called primus and secundus and the difference between primary care and secondary care is actually enormous and chasm-like. Um, uh, and so uh, whatever the NHS has done, it has not constructed an integrated system. Uh, and the se- about, 60, about two-thirds of the expenditure is spent on people with long-term conditions and if you have a condition uh, for 30 or 40 years, uh, you suffer greatly because that care is not integrated uh, and the notion that competition, uh, cooperation, <coughs> if that's what the current system is, constructs integration just hasn't been the case. So there may be a possibility that competition will be able to construct new forms of integrated providers, and that'll be we'll see. But uh, to take Alistair's last point, I don't think the um, uh, uh, the reforms will have much impact on many of these things, one way or another.
3: Okay. um, Yeah. To go to to John Levitt's point, um, this is actually my main worry about the about the reforms and competition generally. Is not that people will cherry pick the easy operations because when you look at it there don't seem to be very many easy operations there seems to be one easy operation which is to do with your hips and everything else is tremendously difficult um, but rather when you look at public sector commissioning which was kind of privatisation or competition who was there to kind of stimulate competition what you found was exactly what you described about American healthcare which is you just get giants supplying everything so you get four huge giant companies supplying everything and all the ideas about payment by results or targets or whatever you want to call it um, goes out of the window because the company is too large to fail so they might fail on their particular target but they still keep getting the work and that's something that you see across the um, across public sector commissioning and I think would be very depressing to see in the NHS in terms of what, what I would do to improve things I changed my mind slightly while you were talking which is <laughs> annoying um, <laughs> I mean the thing which I think which I look at in the NHS which <coughs> works brilliantly and is a kind of third sector, well it's third sector not private sector, is abortion services are unrecognisable from from 20 years ago just in terms of the speed, the efficiency, the customer care, the satisfaction, absolutely <coughs> everything about them is fantastic. The only thing which has gone, which has gone backwards in abortion services is that the um, NHS doctors are no longer kind of trained into them because the BPAS has taken them on so successfully that nobody in the NHS really does them. Um, and that's probably what I would say. There is a role for the third sector. Um, and more it's not. Role. Well, they just <laughs> seem to be really good. So maybe, or maybe they just compete in a more pleasant way. <laughs> it's
0: a nice
2: competition. Yeah. Uh, good convert. Well, yeah, we've won. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I guess I, I, maybe I'll, I'll go the other direction and say so I think one of the things that happens in the NHS, and it, it's an answer to John's point, is that people think it's all or nothing. You know, I'm, I'm Zach. I'm the guy who talks about competition. I don't believe in anything else, uh, let alone integration. Nobody's saying that competition is the only thing that will work or that should be in the NHS. Okay, you need a central government to sort the paper about the need for a central government to have meaningful competition. Okay, we ought to push for. <coughs> I think what we're all talking about here is that not rolling back not going back to some sort of 1975 NHS where we don't talk about incentives, we don't com- talk about competition, we don't give a patient choice. And I think that's the real risk right now with the reforms that you were talking about. And we, the, the cherry picking, we actually talked about it and we found that the private sector here does does cherry pick and I think you're right that we do have to think about
5: it. Thanks, Frank.
0: Would you change anything? Yeah, yeah.
5: Oh yes, I'd change a lot of things. But uh, I think I think the biggest problem that the National Health Service has faced for at least the last 30 years is that the timescale of introducing improvements and getting the professionals to do a better job is longer than the political timescale. And that government after government, Mm -hmm. having initiated things which may have brought about improvements, may not, they've not let the bloody things have half a chance uh, before they decide oh dear it's not working we'll have to do something else and I a bit
1: like that, scrapping fund holding then
4: uh, <laughs> sorry
5: <laughs> like scrapping fund holding no I think <laughs> scrapping fund holding which was carried you may recall by a two thirds majority at the BMA GP meeting uh, very progressive people uh, that probably people, was, was a good idea was scrapping it and as far as I know nobody's bringing it back uh, but the, uh, my, the, it, it, it seems to me that what we've got to try to do is to give the people who work in the National Health Service the opportunity to do their jobs and do them better than many of them, doing them better than they're doing them at present. And one of the biggest problems in the National Health Service has always been, and will not be uh, mended by competition, is identifying new ways of treating people, uh, new ways of organising things, and then spreading them rapidly right across the National Health Service, and one of the first things that jobs I did, a very pleasant task I had when when I became Health Secretary, was distributing awards to nurses who had introduced innovations in their hospitals which were a very clear and direct benefit to patients. And I said to them after the award ceremony, how do we spread this? And several of them, and this is after we've had the internal market from the previous government, several of them said to me, well, our management keep telling us to keep quiet about these improvements because if we in Doncaster have improved something, and then the people in Rotherham know about it, it will reduce our competitive advantage. So competition does not necessarily spread good practice, it can actually inhibit the spread of good practice. But it seems to me that the real thing is, we've got to have certainly comparison, so that you can identify the places that are doing a good job or the units within a place that's doing a good job, and then get to work one way or another, getting them to improve what they're doing. And again, in London, and can you confirm, Zach, did you include London in this great study or not? I, I still
2: don't understand. So we'll, we'll go back to the paper. This is a, a really good point. Um, so people at like Frank often say it's a, it's a London-only thing. If you've got four providers they are each 20 kilometres away, that ain't that different than you having four, kilo- four providers that are two kilometers away. So what we talked a lot about in the paper was it was substitutability. So yes, we included them in some, and then we showed that when you excluded people in London, it turned out competition had an effect outside of London, so it wasn't just some sort of London right. village thing. Okay, well,
5: all, all the time I've been uh, a patient of GPs in London, and when I first started off he was a past Hall old GP, uh, and uh, a Dr. Bolt, and it was claimed he was so old, it was his blood that Harvey discovered was circulating. (laughs) Uh, And uh, I eventually moved on to another GP, and then I moved on to our, our current GP. And at all times, if I needed some hospital attention, they used to look a few things up, and they would say, it was long before I was an MP most of this. Uh, they'd say, well, uh, if you went to Bart, they're pretty good there, and it'd be about six weeks wait, if you go to UCH, it'd be four weeks wait, you could go to Westminster, uh, it'd be ten weeks wait, which do you fancy? And as most people do, I'd say, well, what do you recommend, Doctor? (laughs) But those things have always been there, as in London anyway, as in effect choices. Even if they didn't exist in theory, they certainly existed in practice. Which is why
2: I'm sure you agree with the end of our paper, where we said that GPs had such a crucial role in forming patients' choice. We've got loads of people wanting While to ask questions, wouldn't. so enough enough <laughs> from the panel.
0: Okay, where do we start with this? We've got two in the middle here next to each other. Let's take those two next to each other. They can share the mic.
10: Um, Veronica Teal I'm a policy researcher Um, the question that always arises for me competition in any shape or form is about attracting the staff that will improve the quality so much and um question to the panel is, how do you make sure that um, trusts, foundation trusts, PCT, CCGs, whoever will do the commissioning, have the same level of quality staff at their disposal? Um, it's very expensive to attract the best, and self-selection bias usually suggests that people who are very good and can earn a lot of money will move to richer areas.
11: Great. Um, I'm Edward, I'm a health policy student here at LSE, and uh, my question kind of dovetails with um, Frank's last point. I heard an uh, interesting anecdote uh, from a talk from a Harvard Harvard Business School professor recently about a big hospital in Boston, and he said that 70% of the patients that were treated in outpatient settings there, so go in, go out the same day, would have been in the intensive care unit 30 years ago, and 70% of patients in the intensive care unit now would have been dead 30 years ago. So innovation is what drives us forward. This is what makes things cheap, this is what makes things more quality, and it seems like Um, I guess I'm going to take a little bit different tack than Frank here, that competition is kind of necessary for this sort of business model innovation. I think that's why you see some hospital mergers, because it's kind of a failing business model, and you need that sort of creative destruction through competition. So I guess I'd just like to hear the panel uh, reflect on that, or tell me if I'm wrong.
0: Okay, we've got some people waiting very patiently. I've seen this hand has been up a long time over here. Second
7: row can I put in a plea for competition based on outcomes and outcomes measured by objectively validated criteria I read an article in the Denver Post which altered my thinking on this about a year ago and the article commended the Danish system where you go into a Danish hospital there's a little cubicle which contains um, all the relevant data to the whole range of treatments available for every hospital in Denmark if you're too stupid or too old like me to be able to use the system a member of staff helps you through it and there's none of this um, propaganda that we have now in the health service here where people compete with each other to produce beautifully photographed brochures as if they're trying to flog some kind of new photocopier all those resources could be translated into medical services. I've spent two frustrating years as a patient governor, and I've been favourably impressed with the brilliant outcomes of the medical services, but equally unfavourably inf- impressed with the sloppy management and the general evasive nature of the information that's provided.
0: We'll take one more question over here and we'll come back to the panel.
10: Um, thank, you for, thank you. Is this working? Yes. Um,
11: two I mean, very, two um, very,
10: sorry, Kate Jenkins, LSE. Two very quick points. First, the conversation this evening has been extremely interesting but has been concentrated on hospital services. It always used to be the case that the vast majority of interactions between patients and the NHS was with their GP. One of the things that I've been waiting for is to hear how GP surgeries are going to continue to supply that very important, not to say crucial, service to their patients, which is not just the interface between patient and more elaborate care in hospitals, but is what goes on in the GP surgery.
0: Thank you very much. We'll start with you, Frank. Can I just
10: make one other point, mm-hmm. which is all the reasons for competition that I have heard, and I have a lot of sympathy with them, sound to me like a consequence of very poor management. And I think you will re- retain these problems unless something much more systematic is done about the quality of NHS management. Frank,
5: along. did it short. Yeah, can I ve- very much agree with what has just been said about the quality of management? One of the things that I started doing when I was Health Secretary was trying to develop uh, a a better grade, shall we say, or better promotion prospects for the successful non-clinical managers so that you could say, well, so-and-so can go to such and such a place which is in a bit of a bad state and uh, with a bit of luck they will improve it and uh, that certainly happened in some cases but against a guarantee virtually that they could then go on to some even more prestigious management job and that there was some actual management planning rather than the random system that then existed and I'd still be very strongly in favour of that um, but uh, in, in relation to the previous point about GPs, GPs um, I think that the, what's being proposed now is likely to end up uh, with the GPs very upset with themselves. It's clear a majority of them don't want the changes that the government's proposing. And uh, in my constituency there are some single handed GPs and there are some very large and very effective practices that have got uh, social workers and health visitors people advising on debt and all sorts of things in them. And when the government's first uh, uh, proposals were first uh, put out, uh, I got a letter from the uh, lead doctor of one of the most uh, enterprising outfits, and I thought, oh God, he'll be in favour of all this. So I put the letter to one side for a couple of days, and then I picked it up, and it was the most vicious attack on what the government were proposing from the most enterprising GP in the boat uh, saying that this is absolutely disastrous and what we really need is to be allowed to get on with most of us anyway need to be allowed to get on with doing what we're doing now only trying to do it better and I, I actually don't, I know that Julian Legrand once said that the great breakthrough because I, I, I read the transcript of an interview you did you see and uh, it, <laughs> it, it said the great breakthrough was when you realised that doctors were knaves and not knights and I'm not saying they're knights but I think you do need to actually <laughs> treat them and the other professions with more respect than they're being treated with at present
9: what well, I actually said was they were a, they were a,
2: a combination <laughs> <laughs> of knights I That. I'm going to be really quick. I, I think this is the tip of the sword about the difference between you and I here. I don't think the best way to get good managers is for the central government to say what good managers are and to assign them to different hospitals and to create a training scheme. That's not my belief um, and it ties into Veronica's point. We did some research here as actually colleagues looking at, at how you measure good management and then what predicts it. They looked in all these sectors. Um, they looked in, in manufacturing primarily and then they shifted into healthcare. They found two big conclusions. One, the big predictor of good management in NHS was the hospital-faced competition. The other was the doctor leaders. Now, how do you get the workforce around the system? You allow the hospitals to decide what they need, not Frank. The hospital can say, this is the mix of people I need to produce good outcomes. These are the doctors who I need who are good staff members. And you allow them to compete over it, and a lot more flexibility over who goes where and what goes what, so they can determine what gets the good outcomes that's, I don't remember your name, but but you said that we should compete off them. And they can decide
3: how best to, to get it. So but I mean, this bothers me, and I think I can answer Veronica and Edward at the same time: is that there is a problem with measurement. Often people talk about efficiency measures, and what they're really talking about is driving down wages. And that certainly happened with, um, with the situation with nurses, where you've got an awful lot of agency nurses, and it's cheaper <coughs> in the short term than having nurses on staff, but A, That's it's smart. more expensive in the long term. Um, just because you're not paying pensions doesn't mean you're not paying quite high salaries, and it's worse for the nurses because they're not getting paid as much. So what, what you always get, whenever people talk about increased efficiency with salaries, they talk about, they mean lower lower salaries. Um, and you have to decide, since this is such an enormous employment block in the country, you have to decide whether you really want to see much lower salaries with a lot of middleman money skimmed off by agencies, which I think is what will happen. In terms of innovation and... Yeah, for sure. I mean, innovation is, does make things cheaper, and it makes things better. And, and I've seen some hilarious meetings of peop- of midwives talking about how to get an IT system that would suit them in the community and in hospitals. And they're still one of, one of the midwives units in Wales is still using an IT system that somebody in New Zealand developed when the internet had only just been invented. The company's gone bust. There's no support. They're the only people left in the Western world still using this. And when it doesn't work, there's nobody they can ring up. But they still do it, and I think probably for that reason that there are some structures that don't really encourage innovation. But I also think that when you look at, again, when you look at measures, measures like how many days pre-surgery you stay in hospital or how many days post-surgery you stay in hospital, they look. there is a limit to how low you want those numbers to go. You don't want people discharged after two hours. And that's always where the conversation ends up going. That's what's happening in maternity services. It, everybody was thinking, let's whittle it down and whittle it down so that you're not 10 days after birth in a hospital bed. It's gone it's gone down to three hours. And that is not a great outcome. It looks good. It's quite cheap. It's not brilliant. And it costs more in the long run. So um, I'm really suspicious of that kind of measure, is my short answer.
4: Um, just, just some things about innovation. Uh, the point about... Um, innovation and change in, in large institutions like hospitals or even small institutions like GP surgeries is that it's hard. Um, this is not an easy process. There is a, it's a painful thing to change an institution. And if you, you'd rather not do it because it's hard. So there has to be a pretty good reason for doing it. And in some industries, if you don't do it, you close. And that's a pretty good reason for doing it. And there isn't a similar sort of reason that drives a lot of public sector organisations where they have to do it. So diffusion of innovation in, in, in organisations, in services, where there isn't a threat at the end of the day, is very slow. Um, and that needs to be changed. Now how you change that is not that you go around closing lots of hospitals, but what's happened successfully, and I disagree with the person who's talking about uh, uh, about failing schools, what's happened successfully with the worst schools in the country is because they've been labelled as failing institutions, not just need to improve but failing institutions, they've been turned around completely and there's been improvements for working-class boys and girls that go to those schools. Sorry? No, 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 change the organisational structure sort of obliterate the way in which the organisation was being done, the change in the leadership on itself is not good enough. You actually sometimes need to radically change the whole thing. Um, So very briefly, um, right staff
1: in the right areas, well, it's got to be a question of incentives. That's probably going to cost you more money, so you've got to find savings elsewhere. the question about innovation. I think the question particularly about disruptive innovation, the Christensen's idea of disruptive innovation. I'm a great fan of disruptive innovation. I think its applicability to the NHS is pretty limited because of the negative consequences of it. But it would be great to see it where, where it was possible. Um, competition on outcomes. Well, if there is going to be competition, that's what it should be. And they, of course, should be the right kind of outcomes. Yes, let's look at the Danish system. Um, quality of GPs. There is an argument that goes that one of the things that the clinical commissioning groups might do, might do well, is actually improve the quality of primary care, so peer-to-peer review. And finally, to finish on the quality of health service managers, I think it's the quality of health secretaries we should be worried about. Right, we've
0: run out of time. I'm going to give the panel 10, 15 seconds each to give us a soundbite that we can take home from tonight, we'll do it in reverse order yeah. Alistair just, that was my soundbite <laughs> <laughs> uh, we're going to do it in reverse order so Frank, you were the next to last of the first speakers anything,
5: final point you want to make yeah, the National Health Service is now more popular than it's ever been and it does a good job for most people, in most places most of the time and it's phenomenally cheap compared with other systems
4: Piss about with it, like an Paul, <laughs> <laughs> and it can do better.
8: <laughs>
2: <laughs> Sorry.
3: Sorry, I'm just stealing because I just stealing <laughs> it, I, <know. laughs> I can't read them, so I'm afraid I've got no something I mean, up. <laughs> no, I mean, I, you know, it's, 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 it, it is popular, and it is great. The measures, nobody's, nothing terrible has happened to the NHS. All that's happened is we've had a change of government. And you can see this again and again and again. You get a change of government. Everybody catastrophizes what they've got. You're catastrophizing schools and saying, we must have academies. It's absolute nonsense. Five years' time, we'll be saying, we must get rid of these academies. Actually, the differences are quite slight. And we should just, you know, stop being so silly. <laughs> <laughs>
2: point point. Uh, NHS made stunning improvements from 2000 to 2010, highest patient satisfaction in its history. That's not the time to stop mediocrity isn't an excuse you can always do better competition isn't something to be against it led to the improvements in the last 10 years it's going to drive it going forward so it reminds
0: me to thank you all for coming and to thank the panel